We're the Westlaw Pirates, and welcome to the show. We're here to share our thoughts on Northwestern athletics and college sports, with thoughts and analysis from the visceral to the statistical. We run our tailgate with the red pirate flag flying high above, as we give no quarter, especially the fourth. I'm Sam Walter. I'm John Lacombe. And I'm Eric Skoskowspo. Well, that's a little bit more like it there, guys. Um, great win, 49-7 over Bowling Green. Uh, obviously, Bowling Green, not very good. Uh, there's, you know, we, but on, on the flip side, I, I think before the game, you know, I was talking to a, a bunch of people at the tailgate and we were all of a consensus. Do not bet on Northwestern here. We were a 21 some odd point favorite. And that is absolutely the sort of game that we would have kept close and, you know, lost a, an actual bet. And there we go. Surprises, 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 49 to seven. Great win. So last year, just to help put this in context, in week three, after our disastrous Illinois State loss, I think you can argue this was a similar situation, right? Um, sure. We we beat Duke 24-13 to 13, uh, at home. We, we chalked up a total of 400 yards passing. I'm sorry, 400 yards of total offense that game. We were um, under 50% in completion percentage. We had... Two interceptions thrown, and this was this was a bad Duke team. This was a Duke team that went what like four and eight last year. Two years ago, in our fourth game of the year against a um, underwhelming Mac opponent in Ball State, we won twenty four nineteen. Uh, we put up a lot of yards, five hundred forty six, but we only scored twenty four points. Uh, again, we were um, really bad on the on the completion percentage. We lost two fumbles. We threw a pick. Uh, we we couldn't stop their passing game. This was a different animal. I mean, those those were both games towards the end of the non-conference season against subpar opponents, and yeah, we beat them, but this was a different animal. This was a dominant performance from Northwestern. I thought it, relative to the first two weeks, it felt like um, week three of the NFL preseason when all the starters play and things come together. I thought the team looked fast. I thought there were some wrinkles in there that were clear reactions to, to the issues the offense had against Duke. It was awesome. Absolutely. And I think, you know, I feel like this, this score is pretty true to what it was. I mean, on one hand, I think the play that really kind of precipitated everything was when Kyle Caro stripped their receiver after a big third down completion. And then Godwin had the big return and we scored right after that. And after that, we were just rolling. Um, and, you know, had he not fumbled that ball, you know, you could argue that at least early on the game would have been a little bit closer. But on the other hand, uh, Jeremy Larkin fumbled the ball into the end zone. And Jelani Roberts was stripped uh, in the middle of a drive where we were really rolling. So we also could have easily scored even more points than we did score in this game. There's no getting around how bad Bowling Green is. I mean, they're they're a bad football team. They may be one of the you know 10 worst teams in the country, potentially. Um, but with that said, I do really believe, you know, there are a couple things that made me feel really good. Number one, the bounce back game by Clayton Thorson. Um it really does look, and I think it would be disrespectful to Thornton's really last two years to say that the Duke game was anything other than a hiccup for him. I just, it's, it that, I mean, again, I'm not being a homer here. That just goes against all available evidence. The guy has basically gotten better all through last season, blew the doors off in his first game against Nevada, had a bad game against Duke, and then bounced back with another fantastic game um, against uh, against Bowling Green. And I think if you look at his reaction after the first touchdown pass to Skoranek, 
um, on that bomb. He had a reaction. Beautiful, beautiful oh, play. It was that go- was a gorgeous throw. It was gorgeous, but you could see a little reaction from his body language. Like, almost in his mind, he was like, okay, good. I've still got it, and that was just a random hiccup of a game. And, it, like, you kind of see even him, like, almost feel like, like, well, I was a little worried there for a second. But, nope, yeah, okay. That was just a bad game. I'm flushing it. And then he just blew the doors off Bowling Green. Um, through two of, the, two of the three games Clayton Thorson has played go up against just about any game anyone has played in the country this year. Through two of his games, he's throwing for like 360 yards a game and a couple touchdowns, and then he has one bad game. So Can, can, I, can I jump in with something schematically that, that sure. I think ties into that directly? And that's when, when teams are able to generate pressure against Northwestern, and Duke did it by, by blitzing, right, by, by bringing uh, defensive backs, by bringing their devil back, by bringing linebackers, um, or, you know, teams we've seen in the past, I think a couple of years ago, you know, Michigan was able to get a lot of pressure with, with just their front four or otherwise when that happens and Northwestern is unable to pass block, we have this tendency to bring more, you know, keep more and more players back, uh, more running backs, more tight ends to, to get extra blockers. Right. And I think that that causes, that causes the, the, the talent in our wide receiver core to really be, um, showcased if you will and and kind of in a bad way and that you know we're then trying to get separation and we need you know the explosive athleticism of of our receivers which frankly we often just don't don't have you know with 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 the athletic pedigree of the guys that we're recruiting and i think it puts northwestern in a really tough spot when when we can protect with our offensive line and we're able to do things like like empty sets, I mean we ran a lot of empty sets against Duke, or I mean against Bowling Green. We we definitely saw a few the first week against Nevada. We can run those empty sets and we do it with eleven personnel with a running back and a tight end out there because because Justin Jackson and Garrett Dickerson are both awesome pass catchers, and then you've got major matchup is, issues on the other side of the ball, and I, you saw the result right nine catches for 150 yards from Dickerson. So to me, a lot of it comes down to, you know, if if we get into a situation where we have to to kind of turtle shell and bring a lot of guys back to protect, we need our we need our wide receivers to step up, and that that makes our offense just much more pedestrian and and conservative. When we can when we can protect with just the five offensive linemen, it's a totally different animal, and and you get an unleashed Thorson, uh, which is what we saw in game one and game three. Well, speaking of an unleashed Thorson too, right? Another missing part of the equation against Duke that relates to the whole pressure, especially if the other team is going solid man. We can assume that there was an, an offensive strategy meeting with with Mick McCall and Clayton Thorson that went somewhere along the lines of McCall going, run, you SOB, run. <laughs> and, I, say, I mean, I didn't have it written down in quite that eloquent terms, <laughs> but um, I, the, I, th- I thought the exact same thing, John. But so, and he did. He had, I mean, they, we ran option with him. He was encouraged to scramble. He had 46 rushing yards. Um, and, and that's another big piece of it. It's something that, you know, it, there's one thing to be nervous in the pocket, but again, through three games, we can't stress this enough. The offensive line's doing a pretty good job of protection. And like Scuzz said, a lot of the problems have to do right when we have to bring in extra guys because they're bringing more heat and then you're looking for guys to get open. You're also looking though, if the initial surge is deflected for a quarterback to get outside of the pocket and go into some of that open space. And, and Thorson did that. So that was the second thing I liked. He he did it early. it's It's interesting that, you know, we talked about it last week, you know, against Duke he didn't look to move at all. Right. And, you know, right off the bat, he's moving the pocket. He's, you know, 
choreographing offense. He's running the option. I mean, he was just a lot more engaged in in just the offensive game plan. Well, when it, it, it happened early in the game, and John, you're so right that it was so clearly a strategic implementation by the offensive coordinator to say, do do this. We, we will run with the quarterback, and that's going to set everything else up. And you know, for the folks out there, and we've we've been on this bandwagon many a times, uh, who, who do not want Mick McCall to continue coaching this team, um, you have to give him credit. He he looked at what went wrong in at the Duke game, and he said, "Hey, we're going to do this differently, and it's going to work." And it did. I think so. And another part of it too, and this goes to, I think one of the touchstones that we've talked about all week, and we talked about all season, which was that you know the weakness of this team on the offensive line and bringing in the new guys and the problems. And one of the things I said, and I was kind of in a, not, a minority opinion, not I wouldn't say on this podcast, but I would say within the Northwestern community, is I thought the offensive line didn't do, have too bad of a game against Duke, um, and particularly in, on the pass on the pass protection. Well, so but here's here's the thing though, in terms of of the run blocking, the sample size was so small, particularly for yeah. Jackson, and I you know and I remember thinking to myself, look. You know, if if on the eighth carry Jackson broke one for fifty yards, that would kind of change the whole complexion of where the run game was. And I say that because there were a couple plays where I thought he was close to doing that, and the kind of plays that those were that we just didn't get a chance because of the whole god awful mess from all directions that the Duke game was, and just the way that game played out. That what I thought we were really close to executing. So we we talked in week one that Nevada had some pro, you know, that Nevada's three three five, and the fact that we had some new guys, young guys out there was just giving us fits. Against the Duke, on one hand, that was a better defense, but on the other hand, I think one of the things that was almost working, if not quite working, against Duke was all the pulling plays. And it became really clear, if not in that game, in the Bowling Green, that we are just attempting to run sideline to sideline with as many pulling lineman plays as we possibly can. We're not running up the middle. We're trying to get usually two linemen uh, pulling around the outside and trying to, to succeed through those plays. Now, granted, again, we're talking about Bowling Green's defense, but that's where the yards were coming from um, for everyone, for Larkin, for Justin Jackson. It was linemen getting around the outside, whether, um, you know, and a lot of times that has to go to someone like Garrett Dickerson, who's holding his block on the outside. And Garrett Dickerson was in a lot of plays. He would come in motion and set up on one side or the other, and then we'd pull linemen one way or another. So he was kind of serving as a sixth offensive lineman. But between him and whatever tackles on the backside, someone's holding their block on the defensive end. And if you can do that, I mean, I love seeing it. I mean, you know, it's not something we have a heck of a lot of, of experience with. The team we play in two weeks is about as expert of it as you're going to see a team in football. But it's just fatties running around the corner. It's pulling two linemen, getting them around, not letting the convoy get stopped. And then suddenly you see that picture where you've got Justin Jackson coming around the tackle with two guys in front of him. And if Justin Jackson ever gets around the corner with two offensive linemen in front of him, that play's not going for less than 15 yards. Uh, because one guy's, you know, one guy's not bringing Justin Jackson down. And that's the kind of play that led to him breaking out that 42-yarder, which I think is his, his play of the season so far. So yes, I know we have to temper it because... It is Bowling Green, but yeah, la- lateral speed. <laughs> sure, I mean, and and even as injury depleted as they are, Wisconsin's linebackers are going to do a lot better job getting to the ball, a lot better job getting to the ball. But um, again, 
this is a line that you kind of, you're kind of looking for things. You're looking for them to come together. And thus far, I think the past pro has been good. And it's kind of nice to know, you know, that even if, if, if this isn't a unit that we trust going through the middle as much, that there's a plan and we're trying to get these guys outside. And then, you know, I think part of that explains why Jeremy Larkin seems to be the number two back now, because he's the kid has the kid has some wheels and, uh, you know, work on that ball security. But, um, you know, if, if you're looking to try to get outside and stretch the defense that way, you've got some pieces. So again, definitely some positive signs. I know God awful defense, but, but still, I think it's looking up. Have you guys noticed much shift in in who's been playing on the offensive line? I saw JB Butler out there a bit against um, against Bowling Green. I know he he hasn't been in the, the quote unquote starting five, but I was just curious. I, I feel like there has been a little bit more shifting. I, I feel like you know maybe not play to play, but drive to drive, you are getting a little bit more movement. Which troubles me a little bit because I am of the mindset that you need your offensive line to be a single unit. And, you know, you hear all these talking heads through a couple, first couple weeks of the NFL bemoaning the, the play of the offensive line, um, just in general. And, you know, that being taken back to, uh, you're not teaching offensive line in college and whatnot. And then, you know, looking at, you know, where our offensive line is and just, the mix mash, the 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 Cuisinart, the the blender, if you will, um, and I, I I see where that sense is coming from, and you know I, but it is giving a lot of people playing time, and you know w- when we bring in the fatty package with uh, with Trey Clock, you know that that's some other guys coming in as well. So situationally, there is you know places for a bunch of different guys on the offensive line. I haven't figured out exactly what each situation is for why you would start one, why you would have one guy going over another. So that that's definitely something I'll, I'll keep an eye on. Yeah, I think, you know, right. You, you want as much stability as possible, but I will say, and again, and this speaks to, again, I give McCall credit for trying to figure this out. You know, if if you don't have power guys, you don't have bull guys, but you feel like you've got guys who've got who are mobile and have a little foot speed. You know, that's the way you want to try to to utilize that. So yes, the rubber is going to meet the road in two weeks, and we're going to be dealing with a team that is much better at shutting those things down. Partly because they see it in practice every every day, but um, I, I do still feel like like it's trending in the right direction. Before we before we bail on the on the Bowling Green game to to move to other affairs, I, I do. We, I mean, we talked about it a little bit. We gotta give mad props to Garrett Dickerson. Um, oh, absolutely! What, he had what an amazing game! What a game! I we've we've not seen him targeted in this way, um, running running upfield or, or downfield. I guess is the right is the right term. Um, you know, in in a vertical passing game. Uh, it, if people who've been listening to the podcast a long time, I mean, I, I've been relentless about using Drake Dunsmore up the seam using Danny Vitale up the seam. We've never really done that with Dickerson. And in this game, he was, I mean, he was a complete matchup nightmare for Bowling Green. And that should, that should be true against a lot of big 10 teams as well. I pray that we don't forget that he's on the team going forward. We've seen that happen too many times. I I think a lot of it had to do with the fact that he did not have to stay into block. We were much more comfortable having him out there in passing patterns, but his versatility is, um, arguably our best schematic advantage uh, on offense. 
Um, uh, j- just to, to tack on to that, um, Pro Football Focus had him oh, yeah. ranked 99.9, uh, which was the highest rank of any player in college football last week. Um, the next highest player had a uh, 94.6, and no defensive player even broke a 94. So according to Pro Football Focus's uh, algorithms, um, he had a perfect game. Pretty much. Um, and and the, the other thing that we, we haven't really talked about the defense much, and obviously Bowling Green's offense did not do very much damage at all. I, you know, they, they contained Guyton. I thought um, the cornerbacks played pretty well. Um, the secondary did a good job. I, their, their quarterback had a lot of accuracy problems. This was not like Daniel Jones, you know, two weeks ago, who uh, was, was a far, far su- more superior talent. Um, but at, at the same time, like, it, it comes down to simple, simple things. And simply, we got pressure, right? Like, we got pressure with four. We collapsed the pocket a lot. We even got pressure with three a couple times. I saw Alex Miller doing awesome things. So that, um, again, we're going to be facing much better offensive lines. We, we, I don't want to, you know, we, we're belaboring that point a little bit. Um, down the road, but the fact that we were able to generate that—that's that to me—that's the difference between this game and the last one. Uh, one thing to note on the defensive side, and you know, this was just gutting to hear: uh, Roderick Campbell and Brian Bullock out for the rest of the season. Um, after you know, Campbell, we we never saw at all. Uh, you know, he got hurt before the season started. Bullock came on for like two plays against Nevada before he got hurt. Uh, so, you know, with, with Keith Watkins down and we're not sure where, uh, Marcus McShepard is on his recovery, hopefully this bye week, you know, we'll be able to get him back. But, uh, you know, as, as confident as we were in the secondary going into the season, much like last year, you know, we are, you know, we're scraping the bottom of the barrel and it's going to be, uh, it's going to be a wild ride getting into big 10 play for the secondary. I, I do want to say one thing though, which is. Montre Hardage has not stopped being a good cornerback. Um, no, absolutely he's, not. Our number one cornerback is still great. He for, he's forced forced a turnover in his second straight game. So he had an interception against Duke, and he had a forced fumble on that big strip against Bowling Green. He's getting it done out there. Um, we it's the depth is a problem, right? Um, and obviously the Duke game things were so so exacerbated. Thanks again, officials. Uh, for McGee having to leave that game. But hopefully, right, Alonzo Mayo coming back into it. Um, and, right, Trey Williams, two more weeks to get healthy. Marcus McShepard, two more weeks to get healthy. Um, if we had both of those guys in pretty good shape, that's a workable unit. Um, it's just for the love of God, can we just not lose someone else and let a couple guys come back into the fold? Um, you know, we're only, we're just asking for something reasonable here. We don't need, like, a miracle. But, uh, gosh, if we could just – just a healthy McShepard and a healthy Williams, that would be enough. Um, here's here's hoping we can get it in two weeks. Well, you got to think there's some freshmen like Cameron Ruiz, Bryce Jackson, like guys that were decent recruits um, out of Texas, uh, Donovan Sermons from California, uh, Austin Hiller. Hiller might be more of a safety type, but those other three guys, you know, there, there's a possibility that with the bye week, we're going to get a lot more of those freshmen rotating through and see if we can't shore up the depth. We might not have to burn a shirt, right, if if nobody is uh, is injured, but um, at least we'll be prepared. Well, and Fitz has shown he is not – he has no issues burning a shirt. Um, well, we have 10 true freshmen that have played so far this season. 
Yeah. It's it's high. And one of those, uh, J.R. Pace, that guy, I know he's technically a safety, but, man, that guy looks like a cornerback out there. I mean, he, he is tall. I mean, he just looks like an awesome athlete, <laughs> and he was a big-time recruit. Um, and I think he's another one of those guys that is getting a taste a little bit earlier than probably was intended. But I think he's a guy long-term. You're going to see him play a lot. You know, that he could be a three-year starter, if not a two-year starter. He's going to find his piece, but I think he's probably in the mix, too. Speaking of looking like a safety, Trey Williams is listed on our roster as six foot two twelve. Trey, so Trey looks like a beast out there. He looks like a, <laughs> he looks like a big boy. Um, oh and, man! And I, with, I mean, I'm, squ- I'm squinting at this trying because we don't we we generally don't list CB unless I mean Watkins and Hardage are are both listed as cornerback. Everybody else is a defensive back. Um, so I'm kind of squinting at, at the numbers trying to, to guess a little bit here, and um, that one jumped off the page as. Uh, not what I would have expected. Well, and when you factored the fact that he had a bum wheel against Duke, it kind yeah. of looked like a linebacker oh. getting run around by quarterbacks. But that was, again, people, we all know the Duke game went really bad um, for it, for any number of ways. But our luck in that game was horrifically bad. Yeah. And that's not to be understated. So as we wrap up, uh, the non-conference slate. Obviously, we going in had hoped for three and zero, two and one. Okay, that we we can deal with that. We can work with it. Um, but kind of looking around the rest of the Big Ten, um, you know, we going out of uh, our summer previews, we had some predictions, we had some thoughts on uh, the rest of the Big Ten. I'm interested to hear kind of from you guys uh, where. Where have we gone wrong? Uh, who's surprised us? Who's disappointed us? Um, and it's, uh, you know, interesting. Haven't had, a, you know, this is all pretty much based on non-conference. Um, I think, you know, we should maybe start with, uh, I, I think the biggest surprise for me is Purdue. Yeah, well, I was going to say maybe we should start in the West and, and Purdue's the, certainly the, the, the giant, sleeping giant uh, on that side of the conference. I think... You know, we all expected Jeff Brome to have an impact in West Lafayette. Uh, we knew that they had some pretty serious deficiencies talent-wise, like their offensive line to begin with, questionable play at the quarterback position, and not, I mean, you know, I, I, when I did the preview on their offense, um, I looked at the fact that they, you know, they chucked the ball around a lot last year as well, so just by nature of coming in and running a lot of pass plays, Brome wasn't going to, uh, you know, dramatically change the Purdue offense, but he has dramatically changed the Purdue offense in terms of their point production, their yardage, their efficiency. Uh, David Blau looks like a new quarterback. Uh, Elijah Sindelar has looked far better than he did. I called him a, a potential X factor, um, in the preview and that has come to fruition for them. So, um, I mean, it, it's hard. It's a little hard to tell because they, you know, they put up a lot of points against Louisville. whose defense is, it clearly is not good. Um, they played uh, Ohio, you know, a, a, a well-coached MAC team who's got okay talent, but again, isn't isn't you know a world beater. Um, so it's a little hard to know. And but then like beating, beating Missouri, shutting Missouri out. All the uh, thirty-five-three. So yeah, all almost. all but. I mean, my goodness, that's uh, on the road too. I mean, I mean, they, Missouri is is no Vanderbilt, ha ha ha. ha. <laughs> um, but that's a legit big 
power five team. Well, right? the, I mean, well, well, the other thing too is, I mean, it looks like Missouri's going to be bad, but Purdue is supposed to be bad too. And Purdue, I mean, Purdue smoked Missouri. Whatever Purdue is, they're a heck of a lot better than Missouri is. And I think the the whole big part of the equation, which I guess is we're kind of as we're kind of going to be going into in depth, is the Big Ten West is not showing a lot. Wisconsin's playing good football. Um, you know, I guess maybe people in some ways would like to see a little bit better from them, but I mean, they cleaned BYU's clock last week, um, and they seem to be rounding into form. And you can't point to any other team in the conference and say this team is playing great football. I. I disagree. You think, I think the Gophers. So I think the West is, on average, much more difficult than we thought it would be. I think Iowa looks competent, which is more than we thought they would they would be given their quarterback situation. Eh. Uh, Nebraska is a disaster, but we we projected that going into the season. Um, the fact that Purdue has more than than just a pulse, and Minnesota is. Has has been magically transformed overnight into Glenn Mason's version of Minnesota. Like I don't think that this team is going to win ten games this year. I don't think they're even going to win you know eight probably. But they they are annihilating teams on the ground. They threw the ball eight times two weeks ago and scored forty eight points against Oregon State on the road. Oh, I thought you were going to say Glenn Mason from a scheduling perspective. Thanks to their win. well, that's <laughs> I mean that's. That's maybe part of the equation, but again, like on the road at Oregon State, they ran the ball like 60 times and scored 48 points. That's that's a far cry from what this team was the last four years with Mitch Leidner running around like a headless chicken. And I'm concerned because their their defense is really good, and we knew that coming into the season. They, you know, Antoine Winfield Jr., a guy that we didn't think maybe would play this year, is is playing every down and is looking really really good in their secondary. Um, so, I mean, I, like, Illinois is a dumpster fire, which we thought was going to happen. Nebraska has got lots of problems, which we thought was okay. going to happen. I, uh, let's, let's time out there for a second. I, I, I do need to relish in, uh, in, in the struggles of the Cornhuskers. Um, losing at home to Northern Illinois. Mmm, so tasty. It's <laughs> Riley it's, Lee's Heisman contender. It's, <laughs> it's funny, too, just because the uh, Nebraska's – their their game this coming weekend is a must win game. It's a game they're almost certainly going to win, but they're hosting Rutgers and were they to lose that game, Mike Riley's getting fired the next day. That's just the state. He didn't exactly get a vote of confidence from the AD after the NIU game. And uh, uh, the Nebraska Army is not happy right now. But I don't know, Sam. I mean, Scuzz, I think this is becoming really fascinating to me because I, I think through three games, I think you and I have a, a little bit of a different read on things. Because I look at Minnesota and I'm like, I see a team that can't score points or isn't scoring many points. Oregon State's one of the what, worst teams. That, in the- what? They, or- put up thir- they put up 34 against Middle Tennessee. They looked bad week one against Buffalo, but that's it. Thir- I mean, Middle Tennessee State is Middle Tennessee State. Is that- That's not a good football team. Oregon State's one of the 10 worst teams in the country. Oregon State is a dumpster fire. That team Middle is Tennessee not- won at Syracuse two weeks ago. I, ge- I guess for what it's worth. I don't know. I just... I'm not like I haven't seen anything from Minnesota yet. Like I, I, I'm except, except for a beautiful, great, beautiful helmet. Except a great defense and that gorgeous Beaver helmet. Um, I just I'm not gonna I'm not making. Don't forget any... we lost to Minnesota oh, last year. I'm I'm not dismissing Minnesota. I'm just saying I I'm not I don't get a positive read out of them this so far this season. Um, I think Purdue has played good football. I think 
Iowa has played bleh football. Um, the, Iowa should have lost to Iowa State. Iowa should have lost to Iowa State, scored 31 against North Texas, and scored 24 against Wyoming. Like, I mean, like, Iowa's played three they, bad they, teams, and they should have they lost com- to one of them. They completely shut down Josh Allen from Wyoming, who's on everybody's NFL watch list. Like, I guess, but I mean, it wasn't the larger theme from that that like Josh Allen wasn't good enough to make up for all of his teammates. Like I, like I, I think Wyoming. I don't know. Like I, again, we'll, we'll we'll find out about Iowa sure. this weekend. Well, that's the thing, right? Is like I like I I'm just not. I mean, the fact that you and I are getting different reads out of this, maybe the sample size is still just too small. I mean, I, I think the only thing I can say for sure is Illinois is the worst team in this side of the conference. That I feel pretty confident in saying. Um, the the rest of it I still feel is, like, pretty up in the air. But I, I certainly – Wisconsin I feel like is the king, um, and I don't feel like anybody has – you know, like I, I really do feel like the other five you could pretty, I mean the other six you could pretty much just lump together at this point. Well, Wisconsin at top, Illinois at bottom, and then the other five. Right, right, exactly. So, I mean, I, I, I with st- probably with Purdue nearish the bottom, but maybe, maybe not so much anymore. We'll, I mean, we'll have to see. I mean, I, Nebraska. They're yeah, they're. I mean, again, uh, yeah. I the Huskers are in trouble. I mean, the, the huge part of that game was Nebraska's offensive line just getting smoked. That, to me, was just being like, holy moly, we think we've got offensive line issues. Uh, Northern Illinois is just beating this offensive line to death. Uh, just watching their quarterback basically play like Chuck and Duck out there was like, holy moly, they just can't move the ball. Um, so... Uh, yeah, no, I mean, you're right. It's Illinois, and then Nebraska's got as much of a case for second worst right now as anybody does. I'll, I'll put it this way. So from, from like a fear factor from a Northwestern standpoint, I'm I'm no more scared of Wisconsin than I was to start the season. I'm terrified of, of Purdue, especially the fact that they're, they're doing this behind excellent quarterback play. Minnesota and Iowa and Nebraska – I don't feel any better or worse about our ability to beat those teams, but um, I feel a lot better about those teams' ability to beat us, if that makes sense, um, than I did at the beginning of the season. Maybe not the Brat and Nebraska, but but certainly Minnesota and Iowa. I So if it's me, I feel about the same about Minnesota. I feel better about Iowa. I certainly feel worse about Purdue. And I feel better about Nebraska. And I feel the same about Illinois, who are who I thought they were. <laughs> uh, over on the East, um, what are we seeing? I mean, Ohio State has struggled. I mean, yeah, they you know they beat Indiana, but they sleptwalked through the first three quarters. They got utterly handled by Oklahoma. Uh, it probably should have been worse because they didn't. You know, the first half was so close at least on the scoreboard, but uh, not on the field. And then they, they took care of business against Army. But uh, what do you make of the Buckeyes? I am... I'll put it this way. I think Ohio State's national stage pedigree has taken a major hit and a legitimate one over the past three years. They rely far too much on the quarterback to run the ball, and they and they can no longer throw downfield effectively. I don't know that those two things will have anything to do with their ability to to mop the floor in the Big Ten. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I think the 
the the best team right now has to look like Penn State, mainly because their defense is better. Um, now, they, again, they also have not played anybody other than Pitt. I guess holding Pitt to 14 points is kind of impressive, but Matt Canada is no longer there, as are pretty much all the bell cows from that team last year. Well, so, Matt Canada at LSU. I mean, let, yeah, well, uh, yeah, the little five little douse water on the Matt Canada <laughs> fire too. Da- da- Danny Etling. Yeah. Danny Etling. <laughs> yeah, no, that's all I'm going to say. I mean, he went from from Nate Peterman to Danny Etling, right? So, I mean, so Penn, but I mean, Penn State's defense at least isn't sucking right now, which again was on the table if you've been following Penn State's defense. Here, here's a question though: They put up 33 on Pitt. Um, at home, offensively, Oklahoma State put up sixty on Pitt offensively one week later. Well, can we say on too, the road? Did any of you guys happen to see? Was it ESPN today or Sports Illustrated? An oral history of Penn State's revolutionary offense, like it's flipping the Godfather or something. Like I don't need an oral history of this. You know, you have Saquon Barkley. And Trace McSorley. There's your oral history. Done. I just saved you 5,000 words. Let's not pretend <laughs> like everybody up in that booth is flipping Albert Einstein right now. Like, what? No. Uh, so, but I mean, like, with that said, I mean, Penn State's the best. It's the best offense in the conference, for sure. Um, but, you know, if their defense is a little better. But, with that said, Michigan, for sure, has the best defense in the conference. Uh, that defense is incredible. Um, yeah, the fact that they had they had like no returning starters on defense matters not right, one the, iota. Right, the big that was the big worry where everyone was like, because that's the thing I wrote. I was like, yeah, they're turning over ten of eleven starters, and they're but everyone who's coming in looks like amazing. Well, yeah, they're all fine. So that defense is incredible. So I don't know. I mean, I I think you've got Ohio State, who on paper should arguably the, be the best in both categories, but they're not playing that way. And then Michigan, who's clearly the best on defense, and Penn State, who's clearly the best on offense. Um, yeah, I don't know. Like, I feel like Ohio State has a history of kind of rounding into form. So, I don't know. I mean, if but I, I, I think I'd bet Penn State right now only because at least thus far I have to give them credit for how the defense is playing. I mean, if their defense is a you know is even an approximation of what it's been so far that would be enough to get it done i mean that was that was their whole question mark so well and mcsorley is the best quarterback in um the east i you know i i'm i'm gonna reserve judgment on whether he's the best quarterback in the big 10 yet but he's certainly the best quarterback in the east because barrett has been struggling um wilton spate at michigan is really struggling um particularly with his decision making and his pick sixing um, so that's, I mean, that's a major, major problem for Michigan. I don't know if you guys think Purdue's got a shot to beat them this weekend. I think, I think no, especially like just their defense is, is otherworldly. They've also settled in at, at, with Ty Isaac at running back and he's, and he's looking pretty darn good. Um, which is something we thought was going to happen like two years ago when he transferred. But I know I was like, how many years, isn't he like in his seventh year now? I was like, Oh my gosh, something like that. But, um, I don't know. I, you know, we were all pretty far out on Michigan's chances at winning the conference coming into the season. I think they are much closer than I gave them credit for before we, I just, I just thought Ohio state was head and shoulders above them. And you're right, John, on paper they are, but in reality, I mean, that's those three teams like Michigan's defense is 
definitely good enough to beat Penn State again. Remember what they did to him last year? Yeah. And, you know, I, I, I do believe that Ohio State's going to just bounce back and, and, you know, they're going to, you know, run through the, run rough shots through the conference and then get hammered again in the, in the playoff. But I don't I think, know, like this, this Michigan team could, this Michigan team's defense is, is really good. And for, for whatever reason, like not having all the focus of peppers, I, to me, that makes them better in some ways that there's not this kind of weird thing that everybody's focused on. Like they're just out there balling. The other thing too is, I, I mean, I'll tell you who I would not want to be right now. And I think things are about to get really bad is I think Michigan state's the second worst team in the East. I think Indiana and Maryland are both better than Michigan State, and I think the Spartans. Will you will you, will you think that after Michigan State beats Notre Dame this weekend? I well, if that I'll I'll be too busy heaping laurels on Michigan State to you know. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. No, I mean I and this and I say this as someone who is you you might be you guys might be surprised to know not a Notre Dame fan. I I don't know if you were aware. Uh, I think Notre Dame's going to put it on Sparty, and I think they're not going to be the only one to do it this season. Um, I just think Michigan State is, they are a bleh football team. And Indiana, who after giving Ohio State a game for a little while, came out and put it on UVA. Um, and Maryland, of course, has been kind of disturbingly good. So, so, I, so I, I actually want to talk about Maryland here for a second. Okay. Yeah, they went down to Texas and they they won fifty one forty one and that was huge, and then they beat up on Towson sixty three seventeen. But you know, I, I think the three of us could beat up on Towson. Um, do we know enough? I mean, have we seen enough to really judge Maryland at this point? I mean, they're, they're putting up points, and you know, Texas. I I'm not sure what to make of Texas. Did they, you know lose to Maryland and then they go to USC and right, I mean, give them around, everything they can handle. Because around this time last year, right, Texas had a huge win over Notre Dame and like we were all like, oh, look, Charlie Strong's got it together and then the bottom just fell out. So so two thoughts. The first is that um, Tyrone Pigrom was huge for Maryland in that game against Texas and he's injured and gone for a long time. Um, they've turned to Kasim Hill who was a guy that we recruited. He's certainly a good player. He's a freshman. Um, he's going to have to face nasty defenses in the Big Ten, or at least good defenses in the Big Ten. And I just, I don't, Maryland is, is going to be a big-time running team, and I just don't see them putting up 50 points a week. The other thing I'll say about Texas, they had no business being ranked at the beginning of the season. And no, the the only reason they were ranked is because of Tom Herman. Yeah, and, and he, like yet he clearly that that USC game is evidence that he's clearly impacted the um the effort and the will of these guys to play and you know the technique et cetera in in certain places, but let's let's think about the logic of why everybody was so hyped up about that game and why everyone is so amazed at how well Texas played, it's because USC was an 18-point favorite, and that's because USC put a hurt on Stanford the week before. Well, Stanford lost to San Diego State on Saturday, and I'm of the opinion that Stanford is no longer what Stanford was. They've certainly got a lot of talent in their offensive line, and they always have, you know, decent running backs, but they have a, they have a problem at quarterback. They, they've never had great wide receiver talent. 
Uh, their defense is not what it was during the Harbaugh era. And you can, you can make a little bit of a transitive walk through, you know, maybe USC isn't quite as good as we thought they were after that Stanford game. Maybe Texas isn't, you know, maybe Texas and USC are not as good as they appeared to be in that game. A lot of slop in that game. Um, and you can cast that back to Maryland at the beginning of the season, who's now got a freshman QB. So I'm certainly really worried about our game at Maryland, uh, especially because it's on the road. It's going to be a new place that we've never played before. That I, I think DJ Durkin's a really good coach. That really frightens me from a Northwestern perspective. I'm not ready to do anything with Maryland other than, than kind of pat him on the back and say good on you uh, thus far in the season. Yeah, I just, to me, it's just, I think, right. Like Maryland's got some issues. But the thing about Maryland and the thing about Indiana is they've both shown they can definitely score points. And, you know, like, I mean, they're, they've got their warts for sure. But Michigan State has not shown they can score points. And Michigan State hasn't also has not played an offense yet this season. And I just feel like they're just kind of, I, I, I just, I just see the storm clouds gathering over that team. I mean, there's a clear, they, they, they held Western Michigan to uh, like thirty percent of the points that they scored against USC. Yeah, so again, it, it all <laughs> it all just goes into the whole thing, right? Of like, what like what are we looking at from these teams? Like, what in God's name is USC? What in God's name is Texas? Texas has that one linebacker. Where what's that guy's? You're like, oh, that's the best defensive player in the country. Uh, can, Malik Malik Jefferson. Malik my Jefferson, God, you could watch that guy and be like, oh, well, Texas. Should have a good defense because they obviously have the best defensive player in well, the country. Well, and, and Puna Ford, who was was spectacular in that game right. as well. Like they've got like major, right. major, major right. talent. And then they just give up fifty one points to Maryland, and you're like, what is going on? And then right, they've got major talent on the offensive side of the ball, and um, you know, it's it's some of these teams are so hard to handicap this start this early in the season. But I don't know. I just some teams have so, shown flashes, and I you know. The only teams I feel like in in the Big Ten that haven't shown anything are kind of Michigan State, Nebraska, and Illinois, and of course Rutgers. Everyone else, you know, has at least done something good at some time. But uh, Michigan State and Nebra- Michigan State and Nebraska—that's not the place you want to be coming out of three weeks. Uh, looking looking outside of the Big Ten, um, I'm interested you know what has stood out to you guys um i think clemson is has showed that uh you know they, they found another quarterback uh that maybe they're not going to be missing missing deshaun watson as much as i think uh the national media thought they would uh they look fantastic there was a brief um, moment on saturday where i thought i was watching a replay from last year and then I was like, "Oh no, that that just happened in this game. Kelly Bryant is like is a is a Deshaun Watson clone, and you know is really, really, really. Clemson's amazing right now. And granted, this is against a Louisville team that has not looked great in any of their other games thus far, outside of Lamar Jackson. But the way they contained Lamar Jackson, the improvement that they made against him from last year, and the fact that." They have not dropped off on offense as much as we we maybe thought after that Auburn game. I'm I'm really impressed. I don't I don't see how anybody else in the ACC really really stops them, given the the you know all the quarterbacks that have have graduated, given the injury to Giandre Francois and the offensive woes that Florida State is going to be under. I mean, 
Duke might be the only thing that stands between Clemson and another uh, AC, another berth in the playoff. Well, sp- speaking of easy paths through the conference, Alabama. Whoa, Nelly. Uh, so so here's the so here's the thing, right? Alabama's definitely the best team in that conference. The second best team is definitely Mississippi State. And I don't know who the third best team is. Who's the third best team in the SEC? Is there a third best team in the SEC? Georgia, uh, yeah, maybe? That, that's what I was thinking. Maybe? I mean, like here's here's Georgia? I, I'm I'm not going to say Vanderbilt, even though they've they've looked no. pretty strong no. early. But it's uh, not Vanderbilt. Here's the thing. Here's the thing. Alabama has to go to Mississippi State on November 11th, seven days after playing against LSU. That is just a giant circlet red flag beaten oh. up on the road in Starkville, a weird place hey, to play. Do it, Bulldogs. Look out. As hey, we're you know, we're Starkville North here. So we're you know, <laughs> our Mississippi bona fides not... are are well known at this point. We're rooting hard for Mississippi State. I want it oh. to happen. But I mean like I mean, my God. I mean, they annihilated LSU. That was an absolute destruction. So I don't, you know, I. It's hard not to read from that. I mean, either Alabama is going to do the exact same thing to LSU, or else Mississippi State is a darn good football team. But either way, right? But I don't know. I mean, that Florida Tennessee game. Please, I feel sorry for anyone. I mean, I'm I'm happy for anyone who actually watched that whole game that you got to see a hail mary at the end, because my <laughs> my God. That was train wreck football, um, and you know. when, when was the last time that game was interesting? I would argue that it was Rex Grossman in the rain in yeah. like two thousand three. Some yeah, something like that. It was it was a long time ago. That's for sure. Um, I mean, you've got I mean teams like Kentucky right now. Of course, the thing about Georgia, if Notre Dame somehow ends up being good, then all of a sudden you know maybe Georgia's got something, but. I, don't I know. Notre Dame's got a massive problem at quarterback. Yeah, yeah. and like more than likely, you, those you're not on the Brandon Winbush train. He's just he's he's tuck and run. I mean, I, he's just I, deer rabbit deer in the headlights. Yeah, like. I think those were like two mediocre to above average teams that played a tight game. I, I mean, I someone's got to win the East, but I, I mean, yeah. it's not it's not going to be Missouri. But I can, but you know, I don't know who the <laughs> heck is in it. Go Kentucky. Let's see a Kentucky Mississippi State SEC championship game. Now that would be awesome. Um, but I, you know, I kind of feel like more realistically things are breaking for Alabama just perfectly. But do it, Mississippi State. Uh, get it done, Bulldogs. Yeah, I, was just, uh, I mean, I, I agree with you in, in general. But there's that is that's a gigantic red flag on their uh, on their schedule right now. In the Big Twelve, are we we're going to see Bedlam two weeks in a row, right? Well, it's Bedlam. The first Bedlam is like early November. They moved oh, it. Did they move it? Yeah, they okay. moved it so that exact situation wouldn't happen. Yeah, right. Yeah, um, yeah. I mean, how like? How, I guess you could have a weird thing where TCU upsets somebody, or you know, Texas gets a hold of somebody, and that could be weird. But Oklahoma and Oklahoma State to me are are far and away better than everybody else in that, that conference. That Texas you, you know who ain't, you know who ain't going to get a hold of anybody? Baylor. <laughs> Baylor. <laughs> oh, and 12, baby. <laughs> oh, I, I should uh, I should have taken Baylor's opponents in our little game. 
<laughs> serious, serious, I mean, thank goodness. I was seriously worried. You know, that Dude, would have meant you had to take liberty. I, so. I know. So that is literally the reason I did not do it. Well, that's 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 the thing. I feel like at the beginning of the season, college football fans everywhere were like, God, please let Baylor lose to an FCS team. And then after week one, we're like, maybe we should have been a little bit more specific. <laughs> <laughs> but the... But I was I have, so worried. I have, I, was, I have a lot of a lot of harsh curse words for Baylor and Liberty. Um, I'm going to re- keep them to myself <laughs> right now, so yeah. that I don't get in trouble with your dad, John. But I I, yeah, I was worried because I was like I uh, if because Duke played them a little too close for my liking. I mean, ultimately, I think Duke won 34 to 20 and was was fine going down the stretch. But I was like, that is our worst nightmare if Duke turns around and loses to Baylor. But hey, Blue Devils, they're three and zero. Do do some damage in the ACC, Duke. Make us look good. This is the opportunity we didn't have after the Illinois State game last year. Duke can actually, you know, bail us out, do do some damage over there, and and that that side of the conference is certainly up for grabs. But um, yeah, and I don't know, and I I guess in the Pac-12, it's probably USC against Washington long term. But I mean, there's probably. Se- but I mean, I mean, there's certainly there's so much flux in that conference too. Like, I mean, if you make me pick, I'm going to pick USC. But clearly, they're a little bit there, of an there, up and down there's some operation. Red, there's there's some red flags for USC. I mean, like, I I don't know if if Stanford is not that great and USC struggled to beat. Well, they didn't really struggle, did they? No. No, no. They, I mean, they destroyed no, no, Stanford. Okay. No, and, uh, and, and, and by, and, and by the way, me, that's your group of five leader right now. Um, here's here's, San, San here's the State. thing about here's the thing about USC is I think like I think Darnold's really good, um, but they are they have to be a running team, and if you can stop their run, and Texas really sold out against stopping the run. Like, like Darnold is just not at that level of consistency right now to really take advantage. They're going to have their hands full with Cal this weekend, I think. Um, yeah, Cal is interesting. Cal's been really surprising. But, I mean, if you look at their schedule, there's really – they play they play at Washington State in two weeks. That's another particularly tricky game. But then they've got – you know, they've got at Notre Dame. They host Utah, who's never, never as good on the road as they are at home. They host UCLA, but ugh, um they, they got to go. They got to go to Boulder in November. They got to go to Boulder, but I, I mean, Boulder's a shell of the, their former selves. I'm sorry. Are Sammy. they though? Yes. Are they? Yes. <laughs> so, um, coaching do, departures and and key player departures, but like, but, but I mean, but again, though, but, they, they don't but play Oregon, Oregon and they don't play Washington though. There, I mean, to me, right now, I feel like anyone in the Pac-12 is capable of beating anyone else except Oregon State, who's going to get smoked by everybody that they play. Um, but I feel like, I mean, UCLA can beat or lose to any team in this conference because they can't play defense. And, and Rosen... Oh, that, that Memphis game was so much oh fun my, to watch. Talk about offense optional. We, we were laughing so much defense at the end of the... optional. Defense optional, I mean. We were like so much at the end of the game being like, when Memphis, in the worst call ever, first decided to go for a field goal, which was a bad move on fourth down, and then to fake that field goal, when we were like, look... Their wide receiver basically hasn't been covered the entire game. He's going to be wide open. Uh, just get him the ball on fourth down, and they still managed to pull out the win. I should point out, though, um, just we talked about SDSU. San Diego State's 3-0 and right now with wins over Arizona State and Stanford. That's two of their first three games. Like Arizona State's not very good, though. Right, yeah, um, but I mean, yeah. still. 
That's a team that, like, San Diego State went out and scheduled big boys and beat them. And, I mean, there aren't many teams that have a better resume through three weeks than a win over Stanford and a win over Arizona State. And that team now, they're through the hard part of their schedule. Uh, and that, and that, I think, is the problem: is that they're through the hard part of the schedule. Yeah. The Mount, oh yeah, the oh, I mean, West. but I mean, I don't. I'm not saying playoff, but I mean, that's your group of five right now. I mean, I think I'd circle that team for like the Cotton Bowl or whatever right now because that team's they're darn good. Uh, they they have to play Boise, so that'll be that'll be interesting. Yeah, they Although, get him. They get him at home though, and Boise's already true. lost. Like I don't think Boise's quite the Boise of 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 old. Um, Scuzz model, I think, gives San Diego State like a forty-two percent chance of, of of winning out, and yeah, I mean they they you know all their I guess they're at Air Force this weekend. That's maybe a tough game, but they host Boise, they host Fresno, they host Northern Illinois. I mean, there's just not a lot to be worried about. They got they got to travel to Hawaii. Those refs. I, I've got to I got to say something. <laughs> I've got to say something else because I feel like there's a potential for something interesting to happen down the road. Uh, this is totally. A non sequitur, by the way, except within the realm of small conference football. Army beat the crap out of Fordham and then beat Buffalo and then didn't look awful for most of the Ohio State game. Their next five games are Tulane, UTEP, Rice, EMU, and Temple. Like, you're telling me Army couldn't win those five games and be 7-1 and one through the first eight weeks of the season? Um, I'm, you know, I'm just saying this only because army has been like a laughing stock for what, 15 years. And then last year they finally beat Navy. And now I feel like they've got a team that's not awful and so many bad teams coming up for them to play that, that they might be able to put something together. So um, that would be fun. I love me. Uh, some. Anything- op- I love me some option football. One other weird group of five thing to keep to keep tabs on is uh, so South Florida and Memphis obviously both look like they're rolling. Um, their game was canceled because of of Hurricane Ooh, that's Irma. Right. You know, conceivably that game could be made up to determine participants in the AC uh, championship game. Th- there could be a scenario where those two teams are so far ahead of everybody else that they don't need to reschedule that game and they can just play in the ACK championship game. So it's just an, an interesting thing to look at because if you look at, you know, Memphis's schedule now, they you know, they've got the win over UCLA. If UCLA were to go do good things and Memphis conceivably could go 12 and 0, they'd have a win over a good South Florida team. They'd have a win over UCLA. I'm not suggesting Ooh, that, ooh I like they're, that. They're, they're not like playoff that. Angled, but it's another you know group of five cotton bowl situation. Uh, no, no, you talked me into it. I want to see it. Come on, Rosen one, run the table because because <laughs> you know what that makes me think of. I always think back to Fresno State when Fresno State beat Colorado to start the year, and then Colorado won the Big Twelve. And everyone always forgets if Fresno State wouldn't have blown it in the middle of the season to Colorado State and then Hawaii. Or no, they barely beat Colorado State and then lost to Hawaii the week after that. If they wouldn't have blown that game and they would have just won out, they probably would have played in the BCS championship game or whatever the pre... Because they would because Colorado would have pushed them so high. So, hey, come on, Rosen one. Let's see. Just win every game, sixty to fifty nine. Take the Pac twelve. Memphis wins out. That pushes them into the playoff. I'm in. Let's do it. <laughs> Gary Gary Seegers is in. Friend of the pod, Gary Seegers. I'm sure he's all about it. 
Uh, any anything else jumping out at you uh, a quarter of the way into the season? Targeting, targeting's a problem. It's just so inconsistent. I don't know how to you, fix you it. You say that like we've had a problem with targeting in recent. Well, years. So I, I just like <laughs> I I I've seen so many cases where there's like like McGee got got nailed on. The, the, like there was a there was a there was a textbook sentence that that they almost had to to send him out because he made helmet to helmet contact, but it wasn't the crown of his helmet. He wasn't launching himself. You know what I mean? Like there's right. just so many situations like that where it, it 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 the intent of the rule and the application of the rule and the ability to see this stuff in real time and frankly to be able to see it right on replay is just so garbled but at the same time like the player's health is the most important thing and I don't I don't I don't know what to do about it but it is eminently frustrating and it impacts the watchability of the game and at both levels right at both the college I, level and the NFL level where helmet to helmet hits go unpunished all the time well I just if a wide receiver goes across the middle and catches the ball and drops his head immediately. I don't know how you don't have a targeting situation every single time. That's what happened to McGee. McGee just came in. The receiver caught the ball, dropped his head, lowered his head, and McGee came in and hit him, and their helmets touched. That's- I mean, I'll, t- I'll, I'll tell you the solution. The solution is to rugby tackle that dude by putting your shoulder into his groin. That's the way – I mean, but but these safeties and, and DBs and linebackers have been it's, – it's, it's like – been bred into them to lead with the shoulder and try and nail a guy as hard as you can to jostle the ball out and like just allow the catch and make the tackle right like i don't know that's well it's just one of those things too where it's like if the other guy goes low you're gonna try to go low too and it's so hard to go low without having helmet to helmet contact and oh by the way it happens five times on every single running play and the reason they don't call that targeting is because there'd be no way to prevent it. So they do it with wide receivers, and it's just well. Like, there's, there's there's specific language around uh, a de- quote unquote defenseless receiver, i.e. in the in the process of making a catch, right? Right. And and you do see it. I mean, you do see guys who come in and lower their head, and you know, you totally like, oh yeah, that's targeting. But it's just yep. there's still too much gray area, and yeah, I don't know. You're right. I I completely agree. I hate it so much, but I don't know. Take don't helmets know how away. You do, how you don't that, do it. Well, that's yeah. how you do oh, it. Take boy. helmets Whoa, out of the game, okay. baby. I I I, st- I I continue to go back to the rule, like force guys to wrap, force guys to make an effort to wrap. Like you, you like you can't lead with a shoulder. It's what they do in rugby. If you if you try to not hit a guy with your shoulder in rugby, like a, like a safety. Um, would do that's a tar- that's a that's a charging penalty and it's and it's a card you're you're in the sim bin for five minutes. Um, make, I think make spearing illegal and make um and 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 require guys to try to wrap up the receiver with their arms and I I guarantee that's going to reduce that that form of tackle. Um, it doesn't fix the run game. It doesn't fix the concussion problem. I think that you know the helmet thing would be a far faster way to do that, but. Well, I think one thing that happened too that that also should happen a lot because it'll help organically or help from the ground up, and it happened organically, but it should be something that's actually planned out. Is I think it was it in an NFL game last week, um, or it was college. Chris Spielman, who of course is a former linebacker, saw someone make a really clean hit, 
and just went off about praising the guy and was like, oh my gosh, look at that hit. Like, see how he got low and kept his head up and totally did all that stuff? And it's like, yeah, that's part of it. He preys on all the guys who do it the right way. You know, so if a guy goes in and does it the right way, makes a clean hit, keeps his head up, puts his face mask on the ball, whatever, you really praise a guy like that and make a big thing out of it, and then that will at least help. But yeah, no, I. Well, and the, well, and there was a big study that came out um, last week as well that, frankly, should end uh, tackle football for anyone under the age of twelve, and um, I mean, like, really, truly, should end tackle football for anyone under the age of twelve because the 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 impact of the de- of of the sport on the developing brain is undeniable right um and the benefit of that is that well so a it has no impact on your ability to become a, a professional player or a college player like sure. like zero impact um uh on on anything related to uh success in this game or otherwise athletically but the the other benefit is that that reduces the the pool of coaches and helps you you know helps kind of contain and control the message like granted there's still you know you get down to that level and and you're you're dealing with so many people in so many disparate places but it does give you a a small increase in in the ability to to control the message and to develop the right tackling styles from the ground up because we're going down this road i i'm interested to hear what your thoughts are um you know, the Ivy League has banned contact in practice uh, for some time. The Canadian Football League just banned uh, tackling in practice. Like, they banned hitting. Um, and, you know, want to get your thoughts on that. And there's also been a little bit more chatter of eliminating kickoffs entirely. Uh, just the risk-reward. I mean, very rarely do kicks get returned back uh, for touchdowns um, now that they – the touchback is out to the 25. That's actually got made people try and kick it shorter Short. to, to, and you're getting uh full speed collisions when you've had 70 yards to, to get to maximum velocity and, you know, no play gets more high speed collisions than kickoffs. Um, interested to hear your guys' takes on the ban, the banning of hitting in practice and, well, Potentially eliminating the kickoff. Well, I've talked about this on the pod for, before, but the dirty secret about eliminating contact from practices at any pro level or any college level is these guys have already been slamming their heads around for so long in high school and yeah. youth football that they already know how to do it. So they don't need to do it anymore. So the question becomes, it's great. That's great. Take the contact out of practice. But then where – then all of a sudden – the high school game is going to become a huge pressure point because everyone's going to be looking and everyone's going to be like, well, these brains are in a more developing state than the other ones. Do we take it out? But then suddenly if you eliminate that, then it's like, well, is, there's never contact in practice. So how's – and by the way, I'm not saying that's a bad thing. Yes, you'd have a lowering of the quality of a game from a certain perspective. But if there's a trade-off for like health, I mean, again, the, I'm just saying these are things that are going to come up down the road. But it's it's just an interesting it's thing. N- it's not even that far down the road right. anymore. But I mean, it's What's... like, but if you're talking about eliminating tackling from youth football and you're talking about eliminating tackling from practices in all levels above high school football, then high school kind of becomes this focal point of it's like, all right, well, now what? Yeah, I... I'm hesitant to speak to, I could make a lot of conjecture around, you know, if you take away hitting in practice 
and nobody's used to it, does that increase injuries in games? You know, that sort of situation. Sure, um, De- definitely a, a thought along those lines. Sure, I, I, I'm I'm hesitant to like say that out loud because I just I just don't know. I don't you know we don't have any data or, or any um, you know evidence for for how that might play out. I I'm far more concerned about tackling at younger ages. I'd be I'd be far more inclined to say no tackling in high school practices because that's when. You know, John, you mentioned like these guys have been doing this. They know how to tackle by the time they get to, to college or pro. But now, the reality some, is they've, some, they've some already... may say they may not know how to tackle, and well, that well, is another issue. But well, sorry. but yeah, true. But then, but then the other argument is that they've also already done the damage to their brains, and like how much how much marginal damage are you reducing by cutting out tackling at that stage, right? Like it's, if you, it's a, it's such an unsavory discussion. To have. I know, right? Like so, that part. Um, I'm far more in favor of of getting rid of kickoffs. Um, as you guys, you guys may know, I watch the majority of my football on on replay, and I don't even stop for the kickoff anymore. I will fast forward right past it at at college or NFL level if I'm trying to catch up in a game because. It's never interesting. There's usually a commercial break in between that and when real play starts again. And I just, it's it's a wasted play that I don't think needs to happen anymore. Well, plus, and if like, something like, interesting does happen, you then stop, rewind, and, yeah. and watch the play. And it's like extra it's points too. There's no strategy in it, so it's yeah. like you know, there's yeah. there's not a heck of a lot going on. Now it does that does make an interesting quandary with the concept of the onside kick. Sure. Um, and I, I was listening to uh, the All American podcast uh, that the Athletic has just come out with. Nicole Auerbach and others are are ha- they had a conversation about that uh, today, and you know it it raises interesting thought. It's like yes, if you choose to line up for an onside kick, you could you still do that. Um, otherwise, the other team just gets the ball on the twenty five or thirty or whatever. So here's a here's an interesting strategic scenario that that just played out this past weekend, and I only happened to see it because of just inane stupidity in network television in the Cincinnati area. So USC Texas was the Fox game at night this weekend, right? For some reason in Cincinnati, Fox was showing University of Cincinnati versus Miami of Ohio, which is a local game. I totally get it, but um, wow, there's a lot of other channels we could have put that on, maybe. And worse is that when that game ended, they just went to local news. They didn't flip over to the national broadcast. All that is besides the point. With like two minutes left, Cincinnati scored a a touchdown to make the game 17-14 and lined up for an onside kick but ended up kicking it deep and buried Miami deep. Miami um, happened to get a bad penalty and uh, then threw a pick six on third down. (laughs) Um, But so like that's that's – had had Cincinnati been forced to just choose, like they get the ball at the twenty-five, or you get to to attempt an onside kick, that would take something away from the game. So, so that that would be a counter argument to my whole like, yeah, kickoffs are useless to get rid of them argument. Well, that's an interesting discussion. Um, glad we have it, and you know, as Northwestern does not have a game this weekend, uh, we can continue to have a lot of fun discussions. Uh, before we go f- too far down this rabbit hole, which we could go down and keep going on and going on, uh, let's go ahead and leave it there for this week and uh, continue our search for the Swoley Grail. 
So for my final thoughts, I've got two. One is kind of legitimate. The other is just kind of me venting. The first one is, is actually pretty important. Miller Cop, who is one of our two targets along with Sadiq Bay for our fourth basketball scholarship spot, which never used to be a big deal back in the day, but now that we're reeling in these blue chippers, it's it's a big deal. He's one of the top hundred players in the country. He's a small forward. He Northwestern put the full court press on him last week. He had his official. I think they went and visited him as well. And he has announced that he's making his decision this week. I think it's going to be between Northwestern, Texas A&M, and Butler. And uh, we're probably going to know by the time we do our pod next week. So fingers crossed. This guy would be a massive fourth piece to what is already an incredible recruiting class. So knock wood. Um, The second one, um, let me just say um, that to... You know, if if you hear, you know, a police report or something about how I was involved in a road rage, in, road rage incident on the tri-state um, sometime in the coming couple of weeks. And, you know, and the, the police report appears to say that I flipped off another car or something like that. I swear I was not flipping off another automobile on the tri-state. In completely unrelated news, Illinois has put up several hail to the orange billboards on the tri-state. Uh, that I see to and from work each day as I'm driving south and then back north. Um, So completely unrelated. I'm just saying, if you hear about some road rage incident involving me and that it supposedly was precipitated because I appeared to be flipping off another car, I was not flipping off another automobile on the tri-state. That's all I want to say. You know, I, I will say that it is really great that Illinois has jumped on the uh, Denver Broncos bandwagon and has realized the the glory of Trevor Simeon uh, at, at quarterback. So, you know, good good for. I mean, that's probably the smartest thing Illinois fans have done in the past several years. I I'm, I'm just saying, I I'm not advocating. I'm just saying, were someone to climb up onto the giant hail to the orange billboard and paste over the picture of Lovey Smith with a giant picture of Trevor Simeon. It would probably be the greatest thing ever. I'm not saying to do it. I'm just saying were someone to do it, it would be the greatest thing ever. How big can Fathead make their stickers? (laughs) I don't know. If somebody wanted to make a Hail to the Orange t-shirt and... Uh, that featured Tim Beckman and Ron Zook as Oompa Loompas. <laughs> <laughs> that might be fun too. <laughs> We're saying you got a lot of ways to go. There's a lot of ways to make this work. So for my final thought, um, I put a I put a post out on our website um, projecting likely playoff contenders. I, I've done this off and on uh, over the past few years, but the SCUS model. Uh, you know, projecting out the likelihood of, of different teams to go undefeated throughout the rest of the year. Uh, added in some fun links to, to various spots just to spice it up a little bit. So check that out. Um, basically, basically, it's a lot of teams that um, you would expect to be competing for the national championship. There's not a lot of dark horses this year, but you know, it'll be interesting to see what comes out of Wisconsin, Penn State, Michigan, Ohio State. We talked about that earlier. Um, you know, SEC looks pretty locked up, but for uh, that Mississippi State game for Alabama, the ACC Clemson is just you know far beyond everybody else. Then we got some interesting Oklahoma in-state battles uh, in the Big Twelve. No real dark horses this year. You know, last year we had Houston. We've had Boise in the past. There've been like the possibility of of a party crasher. Pretty unlikely this season, which is which is a bit of a bummer. But 
still um, always fun to speculate and, and think about how this stuff might play out. So check that out if you get a chance, and um, we'll, uh, we'll potentially be updating that throughout the course of the season as things change. Always great to read uh, kind of under the hood of the SCUS model and, and kind of see where things project. Uh, I, if I if I recall correctly, I believe you uh, had some insights on the Nebraska-Northern Illinois game that uh, maybe Vegas was not paying attention to. Yeah, I mean, I think Vegas had that as a 14-point spread and SCUS model had it as a two-point spread. So um, if I had bet on the game, Based on Scuzz Model's in, uh, instincts, which I did not, I would have won some coin. Hmm. Uh, for, for my for, final... for, for the record, Scuzz Model did not have a uh, plus uh, a plus um, track record thus far this year. <laughs> <laughs> uh, for my final thought, uh, real early start on the 2019 recruiting uh, for Northwestern. We got our first commit in the 2019 class. And uh, you might recognize the name, uh, Bryce Gallagher, a younger brother of uh, Blake Gallagher, who's a freshman this year, uh, just committed uh, to Northwestern uh, right after the Bowling Green game. Uh, early commit, obviously. Um, you know, We don't even have the full 2018 class done yet, and we're already getting 2019 commits. But uh, he's the number two ranked player in the state of Massachusetts in his class. Uh, so... Yeah, obviously starting his, I guess, junior year now in uh, in high school and a couple more years there before he matriculates his way down to Northwestern and you know continues just this ongoing trend of, of brothers uh, coming to play for the Cats, which is, you know, keeping it in, in the family. I, I absolutely love it. Also, too, I, I just realized this as you were saying it. We've landed either the number one or number two player in the state of Massachusetts three years in a row now. Joe Gaziano followed by the Gallagher brothers. Yeah, no wasn't kidding. wasn't Blake number one his year? Yeah, so we're we're dominating the state of Massachusetts. Now we just got to yeah. dominate like Florida. We'll be golden. <laughs> <laughs> I, I know we were recruiting a, a, a kind of a big name quarterback out of Arizona, I think, or Southern California. I, I think we've been looking at some, some QBs down there. So interesting, you know, spread, spreading the spread, spreading part of the fame of our fair name, if you will. QBU baby. Love it. Uh, so we'll go ahead and leave it there for this week. Head to our website, westlawpirates.com, where you can leave comments and questions. You can find us on Facebook. Find us on Twitter, at Pirates. You can call our voicemail line at 847-231-2287. That's 847-231-CATS. And email the show, westlawpirates at gmail.com. Tune in next time as we give our visceral and statistical views on Northwestern athletics. And look for us in the West Lot of Ryan Field playing the red pirate flag, because we give no quarter, especially the fourth. John McComb and Eric Scasbo and Sam Walter. Thanks so much for listening. We'll see you next time.